This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I was a bit slow on the uptake there. Wake up. Uh, <laughs> Felicity, a.k.a. Flick4, <laughs> welcome back. Hello, Paul. And Cerise Howard. Hello. <laughs> Tonight is a, a very special episode. Like those episodes of TV shows where, like, you know, they, they, you know, the character would have a drug problem or something, like one of those sort of things. But in our case, it's the second of our MIF specials, rounding up a whole bunch of films we've seen at the Melbourne International Film Festival so far that you can still catch over the next week. Now, of course, you all know the International uh, Melbourne International Film Festival runs to August Sunday, August 17th, so every film we're discussing tonight will be screening between now and then. A case in point is the uh, it's it, uh, the new uh, Indigenous anthology horror film, which, to be honest, is the kind of thing I've been wanting to see for some time, um, called Dark Place. And Sally and Flick, you two have seen this one. Yeah, um, so I think it's five shorts. It was five, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, five in total. Yep. Um, if it, They're all horror. They're all Indigenous filmmakers. They're all extremely different films as well. There's some of them, you know, that were... The first one in particular was lots of fun, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder, though, about... Um, the, whenever you've got a collection of films, there's there's a real skill in how you decide to order them. Yes. But, um, they, they, yeah, as you said, very different films. Yep. And so it's actually, you get a lot of bang for your buck, you know, if you're not sure about what you want to see and you want to check out some, uh, you want to have a bit of an education in con- contemporary Indigenous filmmaking, I think this is a great pick for... Um, Myth, so Dark Place. Uh, I yeah, I, was... I, I really, I did have fun with it, especially that first one that I mentioned. It was like, um, we talked about The Nightingale last week. It was like The Nightingale if it was a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. There's, some, there's some great little, I think they have so much fun with that. Yeah. And it was interesting having that sidelined with some some of the shorts were quite um, intense and yeah, kind they of, were. For, for the length of the film, really packed a punch. Mm-hmm. Um Quite a lot of quite difficult film themes, and even actually even the comedy one has um, oh, very strong colonial, really difficult um, themes. Yeah, really really <laughs> difficult themes. But still, you know, it was like a fun kind of Peter, early Peter Jackson film. Yes, it's um, exactly like Peter Jackson. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, the runtime of it of the entire thing is only just a little over an hour. Yeah, seventy six minutes. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was yeah really great to see these young people have their film showcase screened at MIF. I would definitely get along to check this one out. Yeah, hundred percent. It actually reminded me a lot of Terra Nullius. Yes, that, oh, nice. that was yeah. one of my favourites. Yeah. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. Absolutely and, loved it. And that it. kind of really experimental and fun, but very politically charged yep. um, type of cinema is is always so exciting. And I love it when um, Australian cinema kind of engages with those sorts of narratives. So highly recommend this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be seeing that on uh, Friday the sixteenth, uh, as well as others. Uh, so get along to that, listeners. Uh, speaking of Australian films with uh, difficult kind of <laughs> political context that play with comedy, <clears throat> I saw the film Below. I actually did a Q&A for this film. Um, and it's directed by a, a, a director named Mazia Lahuti, who has an intriguing background. He's Norwegian, Iranian and Australian. So he's of Iranian descent, born in, Nor- uh, born in Norway and has been living, living in Australia for the last 20 years. 
but it's based on a play by an English English Australian playwright named Ian Wilding, and it's essentially um, a dark web con artist played by. Um, uh, Ryan Core is up to his neck in debt and gangsters are kind of shaking him down and he gets recruited to um, uh, his, uh, basically his his mother's uh, boyfriend is played by Anthony LaPaglia and he works as a security guard at a detention centre. And so he hires Ryan Core to work at this detention centre. And mm-hmm. soon um, he starts kind of looking for ways to kind of make money to pay off his debt. And he's got to be there for a year and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and Core's character starts arranging kind of... F- Underground fight, pay for pay for play fight clubs um, mm. among the asylum uh, the, um, detainees, and there's one in particular who becomes his guy, and he really becomes attached to him, and he's got a little daughter, and and then of course through this prism he starts seeing how you know how wrong and broken the whole system is, and the whole thing is like, do I do I keep profiting off this, or do I actually get involved and help these people? And it's it plays fast and re- like one thing I did not expect is kind of like it's like Australian guy Richie. Sometimes, yeah, like it's kind of yeah. uh, this. Re- have any of you seen this? Well, my my friend actually worked on this film. My friend Emma Vickery, and oh, it's, wow. it was shot near my parents' house. <laughs> oh, of course, cause it's in so all in I, uh, Fremantle. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I um I had I had lots of um lead up to this. I'm haven't seen it yet, but I'm very keen to check it out. It's look, I I love Australian. Like uh, there, there was a there was very divisive, and I'm not. Uh, I actually like the fact that you got an Australian film that's playing with difficult issues through genre and is not afraid to divide and and yeah I thought it was it's one of the more audacious Australian films I've seen in a while I don't know if it works all the way around it doesn't quite stick the landing and there's some things that it doesn't quite but it's it's funny when it's meant to be funny it's uh um and it's it's got this kind of yeah it's got a real style to it it's not the gray australian film i've become used to seeing it's very different immediately and you know bravo for bravo for ambition and 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 being able to yeah, take on and, and and again it's like they made it to kind of speak to a, a wide church of um of, uh, sorry about that echo, everybody. Uh, it's just, <laughs> You're the gesturing bell too much. It's all your uh, gestures. <laughs> I'm going to stop gesturing, and I'm going to look at um, a film, another film. I'm I'm uh, I'm very interested in. There's um, well, just the title alone, Cerise. God exists. Her name is Petrunia. <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, a, a fairly rare premise for a film uh if i were to tell you try to interest you in a north macedonian tale of one woman sticking it to the patriarchy the patriarchy in particular in this case being the orthodox church headed of course by someone called a patriarch i believe that's how the orthodox church works um chaos is unleashed in a small village when the annual ritual throwing of the cross into the icy water contest there's a race to, to retrieve the cross the uh, this race is won by a woman which is against the rules uh and so an entire town um entire towns is in hot pursuit uh, as well as the media of uh one woman who's already quite put upon, put upon by her own family and just by the expectations of her. She's a, a scholarly sort. She's not been made to feel that she's the least bit attractive by anybody. She's generally pretty hard done by, but um, it's a comedy. <laughs> it's a pretty dark comedy. It sounds like a very Eastern European kind of comedy. It is your classic Eastern European miserablest comedy and to that end it's quite good fun i I sort of labored the point a little bit 
so I got slightly um, my patience was tested a little but I'm used to that happening too with Eastern European <laughs> miserableism because <laughs> um, that's sometimes the point uh, a bit of real time uh, in, into um, invading the, the film is something that is not uncommon from cinema from the region just to give you a bit of sense of the actual passage of time and how excruciating it can be to live, to, to be, to exist, to, to suffer. To, oh. uh, what is life if not suffering? Serious? It was a comedy. <laughs> and it was actually pretty funny at times too. And uh, it actually comes quite recommended if you dig that sort of thing. And I was pretty impressed to see there was quite a good-sized crowd at the forum seemingly digging it along with me. Nice. Mm. I look forward to that one. Um, Another one um, I'm going to mention uh, just before we throw to our first song um, is Iron Fists and Kung Fu Kicks, Mm. which is a documentary in the style of um, films like Not Quite Hollywood. Um, There seems to be a lot of documentaries in that vein since some of them, more of them even made by Mark Hartley. This one is not, but but they do share a producer. Um, But this is a documentary about the rise of the Kung Fu film and... um, I'm doing. I'm actually hosting a Q&A for it on the uh, screening on the 14th and as a couple of other screenings after that. So I've had a bit of an advanced look at it. It's one of the better uh, children of Not Quite Hollywood, I've got to say. There is, um, there's a lot of uh, beautiful um, context here and they make a lot of... Um, uh, draw a lot of lines culturally between Kung Fu cinema, the rise of Kung Fu cinema, and cultural phenomenon such as uh, Chinese being discriminated against by Japanese, um, sort of post-war, uh, to uh, Kung, Kung Fu films in the 60s. Women were originally the leads in a lot of them, um, originally the heroes in films like Come Drink With Me. Um, and then uh, direct links to uh, African-American culture, but more specifically breakdancing. And hip hop, and it's like because it's something I'd never really connected, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm watching like Grandmaster Flash, of course, yeah, like he's named yeah. Grandmaster, like they, yeah, it's like this this direct influence and the way the African American community really connected to Kung Fu cinema culture. Paul, uh, does David Carradine get a look in? He does, <laughs> he does get a look in. Bruce Lee gets more of a look in. Uh, That's <laughs> right and proper, <laughs> as it should be. Uh, there's a lot of great talking heads here. There's 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 uh, kung fu stars from the 60s and 70s. There's rappers. There's all sorts of things, um, and it's and it's all cut together in that beautiful, you know, fast-paced, flashy kind of not quite quite Hollywood kind of style. And you'll you will leave Iron Fists and Kung Fu Kicks with a huge list of films to track down. It's actually an Australian production, isn't it? It is. So does it does it? So what's the Australian angle? Is it just a is it irrelevant that it's Australian filmmakers or...? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's, you know, kind of in the Oceanian, Asian kind of region. Um, there's also, there's an Australian... There's a couple of Australian people like uh, Richard Norton, who was mm. an Australian martial artist turned actor who ended up making a lot of films um, over in Hong Kong and Australia. There's, of course, the the man from Hong Kong. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Which was the very first Australian Hong Kong co-production from Brian, the classic Brian Trenchard-Smith, the Jimmy Wong Yu team up. Um, he was apparently not the nice nicest man no apparently not uh, <laughs> just a sweetheart not um and that, that there's quite a bit on that as well i yeah i highly recommend you check this one out it's a it's a really cool documentary and if you're a fan of kung fu cinema or if you just wish to be indoctrinated <laughs> into the martial arts um check it out you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia 
In our second segment of our uh, Miff uh, Rap, uh, I, Sally and I, we both saw something, we might discuss it briefly here, and it'll probably come up in a little while, but we both saw the new film from Jim Jarmusch, The Dead Don't Die. Yes, The Dead Don't Die. Is this his... Has he done anything since Only Lovers Left Alive? Patterson. Okay, I haven't seen it. Oh, Patterson's great. Okay, I haven't seen it. So... In my mind, he went from vampires to zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Buyer a poet. Yeah. Yeah. A bus poet. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to catch up on that. Um, They're all the same film anyway, weirdly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this this was good fun. It was, you know, a homage to, you know, Romero and all, all of the zombie greats. I don't think it was anything particularly groundbreaking. Um, I also don't know that it would have got the reception that it's got if it didn't have such a strong cast. Um, But it it was still a good fun watch. I had a nice time watching this, but it wasn't like, yeah, nothing, nothing new. I think the zombie genre is a really hard one. It's very difficult to do something new with the zombie genre. I think the last time I saw something where I was like, oh, that's new and inventive was um, The Train to Busan, which I think was at Myth. I loved that. Maybe two years ago, three years ago. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Really enjoyed that one. But yeah, this, this was good fun, but just good fun. I, I I think I came from a slightly different angle because I'd heard so many negative reviews. I, I just heard people can it, and I'm a big Jarmish fan, and I actually found this delightful. Like I mm. really enjoyed it, and it felt like I'm with you. I think the zombie genre is well, it's, a it's hard pun, dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this felt like a postscript. This almost felt like, and and I like the fact that it was so focused in its like it's it's a it's totally. An homage to Romero's zombies. Mm. Nobody else's. Like it's very much. It's almost like a seventh dead movie. Yep. Um, and I and I really love with this insane cast and you know. But it's also kind of it's a take on the Jarmusch's sort of take on the climate emergency and apocalyptic thinking and generational angst. Like you know, the three leads are clearly. Although I wish Chloe Sevigny's character gave Gen X more of a good showing. Yeah. That's the one I, thing I was a little I disappointed agree. about. I agree. Because yeah. I think, you know, like, uh, I think Bill Murray is the boomer and Adam Driver is the millennial, actually mm-hmm. really well kind of drawn, whereas I thought she was a bit... They productive. were both fantastic together. Yeah. Like, so really, crazy. really fantastic together. They worked so well on screen. They were the most delightful thing of the yeah. film. Oh, yeah. the Tilda Swinton. Oh, uh, yeah, she's great. Samurai she's Tilda great. Swinton <laughs> is insane. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think you know what? Don't keep your expectations in check. But this is I, this is a delightful. I'd heard a lot of um, sort of negative reviews about this as well. I definitely don't think it's 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 not a bad movie. No, absolutely not. It was totally enjoyable. Mm. Yeah, people just need to chill. Yeah. Damn it. Um, <laughs> Flick, um, you saw a documentary that's been getting quite a bit of buzz of late and will probably be coming to Amazon sometime soon, um, One Child Nation. Yeah, actually, I, I think that I could I could even tie in two, two docos that I saw that uh, would work as a really nice um, compar- comparison. So, the, yeah, the first one, One Child Nation, um, directed by Nanfu Wang and Jialang... Uh, Zhang, sorry about my pronunciation. That's probably wrong. Um, That's right. Yeah, that you know the... Thomas Corbell used to host this show. <laughs> <laughs> Never figured it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, One Child Nation was the 2019 of this year's Sundance Documentary Grand Jury Prize winner. Um, it's all about the policy um, that started in 1979 and ended in 2015. Um, and the comparison film I wanted to sort of think about it through was. Um, 
Uh, it's actually in uh, both Israeli directors, but it's um, set in China. It's called Leftover Women, which is um, about unmarried women over 27 years old. And it's really fascinating comparing these two films. So one is, of course, about the one-child policy. Uh, it's a tremendous documentary. It really is, like, amazingly restrained. Um, Nanfu herself goes back to her home village and um, talks about her experience of even growing up during the one-child policy. Um, her parents were wanting to have a, a male um, child, um, like so many of the families during that time, and so had a second child after her. And that was kind of a, a common occurrence, um, particularly in rural areas. And it's really interesting, the, the lasting effects of the policy and the way in which something that really stood out to me was the way in which when you have a nation in which um, so much of your life is being controlled in different ways, how that sometimes takes away from how culpable you feel in um, the decisions that you make. And it was really fascinating exploration of that I actually uh, I saw I went to an early morning screening of that and I was um, very moved by it and had to sort of have a little sit down afterwards it's um, I highly recommend this documentary please do check it out it is screening on Friday um, so you've got one last chance to see it and Leftover Women is similarly similarly dealing with um, well I suppose that it starts sort of in um, I suppose it's set in the aftermath of the one-child policy finishing. There's um, a lot of single men in China outnumber women. However, there's a lot of pressure put through the government uh, through um, propaganda about unmarried women over 27. And there's some fantastic lines in this film, which watching it uh, by myself this morning was kind of like uh, there's one moment when this woman comes in, she's the same age as me, and she's told by a dating agency that she's too old, she's not conventionally attractive, and she has a tough personality, so she probably <laughs> will be an unlikely marriage candidate. Um, and there's, yeah, there's a bit of when um, this daughter is talking to her parents and um, she talks about this man that she's met, um, and the dad is like, oh, it's a scam, it's definitely a scam. And it was kind of reminded me of um, some of the conversations I've had with my own parents. So it was a little <laughs> bit too real for me, but um, uh, it was really fascinating. And I think that they dealt with it in both films are tremendously uh, restrained. They kind of just um, deal with the, they, they have some very heartbreaking scenes and very candid, amazingly candid. So um, both, both set in current day China and I'd, I'd encourage you to see both of them. Leftover Women, there is a screening on Saturday um, in the early afternoon, so be sure to check that out. Nice. And uh, Cerise, uh, you've got, uh, you saw a beautiful uh, lensed in 16mm film about Cornish fishermen called Bait. That I did, Paul, that I did. <laughs> yeah, Bait, this is, this is one that's going to fly under too many people's radars, I fancy. This is not just shot in 16mm, but looks very degraded as well and, and plays with uh, linear storytelling. It's, it's lots of flashing forward and backward, but without a sense of whether it's forward or backward at the time of the flashing. And there's just a Guy Madden-esque quality to the degradation of the image, except that this film is very much set in a very realistic environment. So it's very weird. There's this uncanniness because you know it's the current day. You know it's dealing with current day problems, recognisable problems, which is to say gentrification is sweeping into this little Cornish village and the folks there who've made their living in traditional means for a long, long time are challenged by upstarts, posh upstarts from the city <laughs> who are plying a tourism trade there and running Airbnb-type operations, I think. And then there's some familial 
intrigue and uh, some star-crossed lovers, uh, one of the, the posh upstarts getting it on with the son of one of these two brothers who are at odds with one another over how they ought to conduct their own businesses. It's just a lot of intrigue for a small town and it's extremely lovely. This is one of the more fascinating films I've seen in a really long time. I've heard so many great things about this film that um, I'm definitely going to get along to the next screening of this. It looks amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, when I say the image is degraded, that doesn't mean it's ugly. Mm. It just means that there is quite, um, I wouldn't quite say strategic, but quite, well, there's, there's an aesthetic purpose behind making the image look like it's uh, a film from a, a bygone era that is been worn it, it it gives us yeah this uncanny sense of time you know it is current day but the film looks like it's been aged it's been screening in community halls around <laughs> cornwall for the last 70 years <laughs> it's really really lovely I, i've always liked that look it's part of what draws me to guy madden cinema yeah. only madden is much more a fabulist and a fantasist whereas this this really is actually a social realist piece of cinema but with some modernist um uh, aspects to its aesthetics and go see it's just there's nothing else like it around i think it's a really fabulous film i had it in my head for some reason that this was a documentary no i'm well, glad it's a drama I'm, I'm keen to see it well if someone were to say to you there's a film in the festival about cornish fisher folk <laughs> you'd probably think i guess it's going to be a documentary that doesn't sound that promising for a narrative feature <laughs> film but yeah, there's, there's actually a tremendous amount here that I think anyone uh, in any part of uh, the world where there is gentrification afoot, whether it's the big city or a little village, I think it will resonate. Yeah, yeah I'm keen. To, I'm very keen to see this now, particularly yeah, who doesn't love degraded 16mm? Mm. 16 is my favourite format. From one British take on British social realism to another, one that's actually quite cinematic and, 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 and kind of bold and modern in its own way, is from director Sasha Polak, her film Dirty God. I don't know if any of you have seen this one. Oh, no, I had it on my list, though. So, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's about a, a young woman who's just getting out of the hospital and essentially uh, an ex-boyfriend of hers, um, uh, she was uh, splashed her with acid when he thought she was with another, another man, and so she's this victim of acid attack, and it's the actor in the lead, uh, Vicky Knight, is actually herself the victim of an acid attack so she's got the, the, the face and a lot of uh, torso and arms are, are scarred um, and so she's getting out of hospital and, and coming back home to her mother and and her child who's who's kind of two years old and it's also her child with this man who who injured her in this way so and he's in court and his trial's coming up and and her child is scared to look at her face and and kind of freaks out whenever particularly when she's wearing she's got this plastic mask she wears to kind of keep her skin kind of in and formed and hyg- and things like that and and so when she's wearing that the kid freaks out and and so it's her, her just trying to I- I get back into society and and reconcile you know get back to who she was but also reconciling this whole thing with now with with body image and feeling attractive and you know w- will she find love and sex again and you know she's a young woman like she's you know, like in her early twenties so she's you know clearly you know wanting to go out and party with her with her friends and and all that sort of thing and and finding all that sort of compromised and and her mother's a difficult character like she kind of sells maybe not entirely legit clothing goods from her house and all this hosts these kind of tupperware parties but for like you know gucci bags that may or may not have fallen off the back of a truck um but there's a real like like all great 
British social realism. It's got a, it's got a real humour to it as well. Like you know, the characters are real matter of fact, and you know, throw the C bomb around in a very <laughs> kind of you know into um, very kind of raw and. But, yeah, there's also a sense of uh, composition and colour and, and everything in this that's just really striking. And I think director Sasha Polak is one to watch. Vicky Knight gives a terrific performance. And it shows that I think both of these films, Dirty God and Bait, show that social realism, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be just plonk the camera there and have people yeah. move in front of it, that you yeah. can be cinematic in a bold fashion and mm. not have it detract from the drama. It. The one thing I will say is, Dirty God, the the ending is slightly packed. Like, it kind of lets a couple of characters off a little easy and it's it, it sort of doesn't feel as earned as the rest of the film. But I highly recommend it screens again on Saturday the 17th. If you're a fan of um, that, that sort of um, cinema, I highly recommend it. It had a couple of moments that really emotionally blindsided me as well. Mm. I think I also, expect. yeah, the decision as well to cast people who have, you know, an actor who has experienced that herself, I think is always really powerful. And it's interesting, especially when it's used um yeah with with particularly traumatic experiences it does add to the performance mm. you know, it can really work as a collaborative experience yes for the film and so yeah that was why it was on my list it looks fascinating yeah, yeah. no it's really uh, drawn out of it but you know it's, it's also that refusal I think from that experience to not make her a mere victim yeah to make her someone that's sort of you know no I'm going to live my life and yeah. be the person I am, you know. Um, and, yeah, uh, it, it goes on some fascinating um, twists and turns throughout the film as well. Yeah, I, I really recommend this film. Dirty God. Three, triple, ah. Oh. So one I'm super keen to see, and I'll in fact be seeing tomorrow night when it screens at the uh, the intriguing venue of the Sofitel Melbourne on Collins. <laughs> Any of you been there? No, I was gonna. No, I, I haven't I have. been to a screening there. How was it? I have. It was difficult to find. It's not especially cinema esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's making good of a awkward situation I suppose for the festival trying to find other spaces in the city of Melbourne in Acme's absence it's functional it's serviceable. To be honest I didn't hate it I thought I'd go in, you know, feeling like I was there for a, you know, a TED talk or something. But it was actually, we it, sitting in the sort of the front rank. I don't know what the sound was like up the back, but it was quite. And Dirty God, which is quite a visually and orally kind of, you know, booming movie, um, we saw that there, and it was, yeah, it was actually quite affecting. The seats were more comfortable than the capitals. Yeah, best to be near the front because it's yes. not a big screen. No, no, mm. it's not. I'm a bit, but I mean, it's not that big a venue. It's one of one of the smaller smaller venues. But yeah, get in front if you can. So, showing there tomorrow night is Recorder, the Marion Stokes project. Uh, yeah, I saw Recorder, and um, it was a really, really interesting documentary. I had no knowledge of Marion Stokes before I saw this, so a little context for those of you like myself that didn't know, that don't know anything about her. She. Um, in the 1960s, she became involved in the Communist Party um, and became, you know, quite outspoken about that, was often on TV. Um, she would go on a sort of... I, I forget the name of the TV television program, but in the um, late 1960s, early 1970s, she was frequently on um, a television where they'd have people from different um, political parties, you know, talking Is about their Crossfire? views. Is that Crossfire? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's the one. Thanks, Paul. So she was frequently on Crossfire. Um, she moved away from the Communist Party and then 
was really invested in media and in particularly the news. And when the first 24-hour news channel came about, she saw the way that it was presenting the news in a different way to audiences Mm. and how it would be received. So she... Sorry, um, I was distracted for a second there. Um, so, yeah, she began recording all the 24-hour news stations which were then coming along. So she would record Fox, um, CBS, NBC, everything that had any sort of 24-hour news bo- broadcast to see the differences in how they'd present this and how this manipulated um, people's perceptions of what was happening in the world. There's some particularly interesting footage from her archives of um, when September 11 is unfolding and from the four sort of main news sources in the States and when they were sort of switching on from their regular programming to what was happening at the Twin Towers. So she recorded this for, God, right up until she died in, I think, 2008. So there's something like 70,000 videos of just news footage. Uh, It's incredible. That wasn't her only quirk. That's the main one that they sort of focus on. It was a different documentary to what I expected in the way, her reason why she was recording this. She um, wanted, really specifically wanted to archive this footage because when she was on television, she wasn't able to access that footage anymore. So she thought it was important historically that she was doing this. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. It was a really interesting documentary. Um, but, yeah, fascinating, really, really fascinating that she had something like... Um, 10 different VCR recorders going at a time and then when technology was changing, the panic of not being able to get, you know, a blank VHS anymore. So, yeah, it was fascinating. I'm super keen <laughs> to see Yeah, it. it's great. Now, uh, from the that to, well, what segue is there? <laughs> to uh, There's two films remaining. So Peter Strickland, the filmmaker behind In Fabric and the Duke of Burgundy, was um, out here and Miff had a season of his films, a director focus, and he selected a number of films that were influential on him and there are two left to screen and they're both screening this weekend. Andy Warhol, well, P- Paul Morrissey's Trash and uh, you're going to have to help me with the name here, uh, the director of The Cremator. Yurai Hertz. Yurai Hertz is the, com- the cremator. Um, uh, now, Sally and Cerise, you've both seen Trash before. I've seen Trash many times, <laughs> but, God, I'm so excited to see it on the big screen. Seen and lived it. Yep. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting. For those of you that don't know, it's one of Paul Morrissey's um, films. He's sort of Joe D'Alessandro trilogy set in the Lower East Side of New York. Um It was great to actually hear Peter Strickland talk about his love for this film and that he kind of got this in an Andy Warhol pack when he was younger, which was definitely my experience of this film, being a teenager, and I don't know if anyone else remembers, but often Paul Morrissey's films are branded as Andy Warhol Presents. Um, That's what drew me in with definitely this trilogy. I remember getting it at the Video Easy, cheap, and I still have that. It's really nice. Flesh, Um, trash and heat. And, um, yeah, he's also his Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula that were branded this way and it was just that you got, kind of got drawn into seeing these films when you were younger because of the Andy Warhol presents on them, but they're just fantastic films. And Holly Woodlawn in this film is outstanding. She, it's such an incredible film. I've never seen it on the big screen and I'm super, super, super excited, um, yeah, for a film that I've seen a million times to see it on the big screen. And I think uh, 
I mean, yes, uh, Strickland is clearly besotted with these films mm. and, and besotted with Holly. Holly is... Holly Woodlawn is actually in his uh, short film Bubblegum that is, I don't think, actually screening before any of the shorts, uh, before any of the features, Did alas. He, was that his first ever short film? It wasn't. His first ever short film was smuggled into the programme just screening ahead of his first feature uh-huh. uh, last Friday, Catalan Varga. But no, um, it's the first one that's listed on IMDb, I think, which means it's the first, let's call it legitimate yes. <laughs> short film. Yeah. Uh, and the cremator. I think I, I did, did. I mean, given any platform, I'll talk about the cremator till the cows come home. I think I may have mentioned it last week. It is on the this Sunday coming. I think. Yes. It is just one of the most extraordinary um, gothic horror, Holocaust comedy, uh, expressionistic <laughs> nightmare, funded and then banned by communist regimey sort of films you could possibly even begin <laughs> to conceive of, and then still have your jaw dropping as you watch it. Um, trying to even uh, credulously believe such a film exists. There's, it's so singular. Uh, everything about the film stylistically is unique. There's a lot of fisheye lensing. There's a lot of matching shots as scenes magically for, uh, go from one... Well, the main character, Rudolf Sushinsky, won a, a performance for the ages, goes from scene to scene by means of gesturing. So he's in one room, suddenly reaching his arm out expansively, and then there he is again somewhere quite different, waxing lyrical in that incredibly sinister way of his uh, about the benefits of cremation to the general <laughs> populace by way of liberating them, which uh, when it coincides with um, uh, increasing German presence in Prague circa the onset of World War II, assumes extremely sinister dimensions. Uri Hertz is one of very few major film directors to have spent time in a concentration camp himself as a child. He knew the Holocaust, and he somehow still knew how to find it both funny and terrifying. <laughs> this is just a miraculous film. There's nothing remotely funny about it, and yet it is kind of extremely squeamishly, uncomfortably funny. Incredible accomplishment, this film. And one of the great scores as well by the great Stenyuk Lishka. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, Flick Ford and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Thank you for listening to the second of our Melbourne International Film Festival shows. All the films we've mentioned tonight will be screening in the final week of the festival between now and Sunday night. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplear.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcast. Next week, we'll be uh, plugging Radiothon, having our annual Radiothon uh, show, extolling the virtues of Triple R, and we may or may not be discussing the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and for Killer Carl Chapman panelling this week <laughs> and for Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.